0: Women, Success, China, is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. We are here this week with Lenora Chu, author and journalist whose work illuminates the impact of culture on education, parenting, and global competitiveness. Lenora is introspective and deliberate, yet also vibrant in the way that she talks about her experiences. We delve into the meaning of creativity within the context of American and Chinese teaching pedagogy, how she's going to introduce the book that she wrote to her sons, and the phases of writing her book, from broad anthropological exploration to reflecting and lecturing on the content a few years out. She said that she received advice to not write a book unless you love the subject matter. She thinks deeply on these topics of education and parenting as it's been central to her life, both professionally and personally. I can't do this justice, so let's just listen to it from her perspective. Today on Ta for Ta, we have Lenora Chu, esteemed writer and journalist. And I'd say most prolific of your work is Little Soldiers, An American Boy, A Chinese School, and The Global Race to Achieve. And we'll certainly reflect on those uh, experiences as well as what it's like a few years after publishing that book. So thank you so much for coming on Ta for Ta. Sure. Thanks for having me.
1: I'm thrilled to be here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. And I want to give listeners a little bit more context on who you are and how you've reached the level of success that you've had. And can you just give us a little bit of a highlights reel of your career to tell us more about who you are? Sure.
1: So, you know, I, I think of my career in sort of phases. And I'm not one of those people where the answers were always clear. In fact, I've had this very twisted, torturous, often very painful sort of career path, a because I was trained as an environmental engineer when I really didn't want to be an environmental engineer. And always felt like I was suppressing all these sort of creative instincts, you know, wanting to express myself, wanting to be a writer, wanting to be even an actor for a time, in favor of, you know, what my engineer and scientist parents wanted me to do. So, you know, I'm old, I'm grown now, I have a family of my own, but for whatever reason, you know, when you grow up, you know, in an, a Chinese immigrant family in the United States, especially to my particular parents. It always comes back to what they wanted. And, and I'd say I was, I was programmed like a robot for most of, most of my childhood, and it worked. I got into Stanford. I got a civil environmental engineering degree from there, and I went into a couple of jobs that were the jobs that everyone had coming out of Stanford you know, consulting, investment banking, or or your pre-med or pre-law, there seem to be only four or five respectable choices. And from those experiences that I say, I'd say that, you know, it took me a while to sort of find what I really wanted to do. From from a couple of management consulting jobs that were really interesting and had me traveling pretty much all over the world to visit client sites and work on very interesting problems. I just didn't feel it was creative enough. And at one point I found journalism, went off to journalism graduate school. And once you meet your partner, then you have this other person's career to factor into the mix. And so it always felt like from then on, sort of from my late 20s on, I was always, we were always jockeying for position, always trying to take turns. You know, Minnesota was for him. Then we moved to LA for me. Then we moved to Shanghai for him. And at every stop, one of us was trying to sort of remake ourselves with a skill set that we had.
0: What was it like being the leading or the trailing spouse? I actually want to dive a little bit more into maybe one of those experiences and how you navigated or jockeyed that.
1: It's, it's difficult. I'd say that one person is always feeling slightly guilty and also, there's a huge amount of pressure on your shoulders if you're the one who's leading, right? In other words, this person, highly educated person, has uprooted everything and come here for me. Um, so there's guilt in that. Um, mm-hmm. If you're the trailer, if you're the trailer, it requires quite a bit more creativity and flexibility, I would say. You know, you don't land with everything in place. You don't have a W two job. You don't have an office, you know, you're constantly trying to remake yourself. So let's talk about China. I actually landed there as a trailing spouse. I'd had some really amazing job opportunities in the US. I left a job, came to Shanghai, and all of a sudden, you know, Shanghai in 2010 was very different from Shanghai now. I'd say in a decade, things have changed dramatically. But in 2010, there were jobs coming at me, literally from out of the woodwork. Um, you want to work in media? Great. Do you want to go back to your engineering days? Great. Um, do you want to be a journalist? Okay. You know, there were all kinds of things coming at me. And the first few years, I worked in um, public relations. I worked in media consulting. I was also working for the university sector, still writing speeches, still publishing a magazine on a consulting basis. Um at the same time, I had this child and you know oftentimes life kind of just lands in your lap. You know, as I was pursuing all these career opportunities, I was also watching my very young son have all these interactions with the Chinese system. Anytime you bump up against a Chinese institution, you know, whether it's school or you have a Chinese landlord or you're trying to get registered with the authorities or you know, the Waiban, the foreign ministry, anytime you interact, you know, there's a culture clash. And my son was experiencing all of this at his local school. And at some point, that became what I wanted to do. I wanted to explore this issue of education. Um, But that didn't happen until maybe my third or fourth year in.
0: I mean, yeah, let's talk about that. As you were mentioning, while you were living in Shanghai, you enrolled your three-year-old son in a state-run public school. And from what I understand, this experience inspired Little Soldiers. And you've talked about the experience and the content a lot. But how did you go about... Having unique experience that I mean was unique for your family, but also is unique probably for some other families that had enrolled their kids in school in China. How'd you go from taking that to, okay, now I'm going to wrap around this some context um, of other stories and really dive into this subject matter and, and create a book around it?
1: You know, I have been in journalism. For a very long time, I'd say 10, 15 years. Uh, I worked full time as a newspaper reporter back in the US. My first job was actually as a political reporter and columnist. I covered the Minnesota State House, the state legislature. Um, And then I became a business reporter for CNN Money. So I'd always had a real understanding of politics and business culture, I'd say, came naturally to me because I'm this Chinese-American growing up with Chinese parents in very white suburban Houston. At the time, it was very mono-ethnic. It's not anymore, but at the time it was. And so, you know, these politics, the economy, culture were always things that I'd thought about, spent a lot of time thinking about. And of course, education, given the educational background that I had, what I was basically forced to do by my cliched tiger parents. Once I landed in Shanghai, I felt that all of this sort of came to a head. The story of education in China, the world's largest economy, it really hadn't been told in book form. And when I was looking around at the magazine pieces and the short pieces that everyone was doing, it didn't seem to Mm -hmm. quite dig deep enough. And there was so much nuance of Chinese behavior that wasn't being explored. And so the first thing you want to do when you want to write a book, um, when you have a book idea, is you start taking notes. It's really not about putting together the book itself, but it's just making sure you record everything. And that took a huge amount of time. You know, the conversations with the teachers, you know, what it took to get into school, you know, even trying to give a gift at Chinese New Year, all these little details you lose them if you don't write them down in the moment. So I spent a couple of years just taking notes on, on everything that happened to us. And then pretty soon I expanded from there to include all these other characters, the Chinese students that I met, you know, experts on education and that sort of thing. So it started with a personal journey. It very rapidly became this larger journalistic investigation that took uh, several years.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there was this discovery phase, this almost anthropological observation of what was happening around you at first. Then going to the point of you know expanding this, building it with more ideas from different perspectives, when did you feel like you were at the process and point where you wanted to either get an agent or get a publisher and think about, okay, how am I going to commercialize this?
1: You know, it's funny, so hopefully this will help all of you potential book writers out there. I I meet a lot of people who just want to write a book, any book. They just want to do the book thing. But the truth is, if you don't love that topic, you're going to be spending, if it's going to be a good book, I'd say minimum three years, right? From three to five years, from conception to, if it's nonfiction, to reporting, to the writing, to organizing the chapters, You know, the agenting and the publishing that almost comes afterwards, but you almost have to have that passion for whatever topic that is first, because if you don't trust me, you know, we're talking about this book still seven years after I first conceived of it. If you don't love this topic, if you don't want to live and breathe it, and if you aren't okay talking about it, probably even for the next 10 years, don't do the book, you know, don't do the book and my writer friends used to say that to me all the time and i'd say uh haha yeah but you have a book how can you say that to somebody who doesn't have a book but it's true and i've had other attempts before when i was in la i was intending to write about a completely different topic but it wasn't something that i lived and breathed that i wasn't i wasn't super passionate about it and it's not that it showed but it just didn't get picked up as quickly as this particular book you know by the by the agents and publishers and i think i also had that confluence of factors you know, there are not that many people having this particular experience with the language skills in both Chinese and English to be able to tell a story. Happen to be a journalist, I know how to put uh, a reporting trip together. I know how to get the details that need to be told, and I need to—I know how to put that all in book form. Happen to be in mm-hmm. Shanghai at the time. Shanghai education was really at the forefront of the international news media you know, all of that, when it comes together for you, then things are quite easy. When you don't have those things, it doesn't mean it's not worth pursuing. But I've had other attempts that were much more frustrating than this particular
0: one. Is there a period when you're writing in your process where you really want to keep those ideas close to yourself, just for the purposes of, you know, developing the idea and really developing in its own vacuum with your own intellectual thought. So I'm, I'm curious about that. You know, there is a part in the process where it's, it's you with the content. And then there's a point in the process where, you know, you're opening it up for critique, not only from friends and people that you trust, but also from editors, people in the publishing process. You know, there's different stages, so to speak.
1: I, I think it depends on who you are. I think some people genuinely need feedback at every point of the way. Say you're say so you're not a writer, you don't know any writers, you don't know what it's like to even put together a book proposal, then you're going to need a lot of feedback from the very beginning. I think I'd been through that process before. We have a lot of friends who are writers, and I knew enough about the process to know that I had something and I didn't want to be dissuaded. Because if you think about it, if it's somebody said, hey, I'm going to write about it. my experiences you know, with this American kid in a local Chinese school, you know, there's so many things that could have been said, oh, that's just going to be like Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother part two only said in China. Like no one's going to read that. I mean, there's so many things that could be said and you sort of want to shield yourself from it. And I knew that what I had was interesting. Like only I knew what I had. And there's also, uh, there's, so there's a part where sometimes you want to be isolated in your little sort of echo chamber and that's where the creativity comes from. And often comments sometimes can stamp out that creativity at least for me, I wanted my ideas to be crazy in the beginning. And then the other issue is that I wasn't sure how much of my son I was going to actually put in there. I wasn't sure if the school was going to be identified or not Ooh. identified. I didn't want anybody to be scared about my presence before I'd even decided what I was going to do with the material. I can tell you my book idea, and if you had the same book idea, we're going to have two completely different books. That's that's not the worry. Um, the worry is more about creating your own creative space to be able to get the work done. And then secondly, you know, I had my son in the state run institution, I didn't really need any additional scrutiny. And so I'd say the first 18 months when I knew I wanted to do this book, I really wasn't talking about it a whole lot with other people. And then of course, by the time, you know, I had my draft, I was seeking a lot of input. And I wish that phase had actually been even longer, Um, you know, but, but it is what it is. So that makes a lot of sense. Yes, yeah. What what what's a killer is, oftentimes when you've been reporting something for several years, you know, say you have enough for four hundred thousand words, and they want you to make eighty thousand words out of it. I mean, that's cutting quite a bit out of uh, what you intended to say. And I'm glad I didn't write a four hundred thousand word book, but you know, that's part of the process. It was a very painful part of the process, but um, there it is. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code wondery at bite.com. That's byte.com. That's B Y T E.com.
0: Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Yeah, I mean, so I, I do want to ask you one question. I mean, I was listening back to an interview done with one of our fellow podcasts, Seneca. And I actually came to a similar conclusion when I read your book as Jeremy and Kaiser that. Little Soldiers can almost be seen as this meta-extrapolation of the U.S. versus China in that the the pendulum can swing too far in either one direction or the other, whether that be the cult of anti-intellectualism versus over-drilling students or weeding and filtering out students versus No Child Left Behind or over-diagnosing our kids versus neglecting mental health and these almost polarizing ends of the spectrum that, you know, our cultures are so much at a divide. And I know that in that episode, you said, you know, I didn't even think of a book that way. Have there been certain extrapolations that people have gotten from your book in the years after publishing that have either surprised you, have been something you didn't expect? I'm, I'm curious about in the process of going through a book tour and talking about the book, as you said, it's been seven years since the initial conception of the idea, you know, what has that experience been like reflecting on what you've written?
1: I think that people bring their own experiences to any particular piece of work, whether it's a book or a movie or even a painting, whatever it is, and there's nothing that you can do about it, you know? And so I had people who were saying, this is a see on why a Chinese education is good. And then you had other people saying, this is exactly why Chinese education is horrific. You know? and, and the converse I had people writing to me, you know, American education is in real trouble. And then other people saying, you have proven why American education is tops in the world. And for a long time, it was so confusing to me. It's just confusing to have things like this coming at you from all directions. And then finally, at one point, somebody said to me, "Lenora, that means you struck the right balance, right? You know, you're presenting the research, you're presenting what you found, and people are going to draw from that to support whatever conclusion, frankly, they want to hear or whatever preconceived notion they have. I feel like I have been able to change some minds and that's been really gratifying. There are like these broad buckets of people that write to me with great passion about the book and, and usually they're working in education somehow, whether it's in the US or China, and they're working with Chinese families. Or sometimes they're young Chinese students who are coming to America and trying to make sense of the culture there and why, you know, these kids <laughs> are that the way they are, you know, these Kids have come through American schools and, and generally the culture there. You know, why is there so much emphasis on football or whatever? So I think that everyone brings to it what they want and they come away from the book with a couple of ideas that stick with them. And that's really all you can ask for. But yeah, I, I think that you could say, I was surprised that I was really getting it from all directions.
0: And naturally, yeah. I mean, naturally, that's probably what comes with writing something that's nuanced. Maybe not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No 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 perhaps and i and i wanted it to be nuanced you know there have been people who have said you know china is pumping out robots and we should not be like china i didn't want to say we should be or we should not be like them i just wanted to present this one narrative and the research that i'd found in trying to make sense of this journey and that is that and, and it's funny some some chinese parents that i've met i don't know if they get upset but but i think that it's most provocative for those Chinese parents who are trying to figure out what kind of education to give their child and say they're in China and they feel stuck in the system. Um, and they're looking over at getting over to the U S somehow, but that's so competitive. We know those channels are feeling more competitive than they were 15 years ago. And there's so much anxiety. And I would say that they, um,
0: for for this group of people that it is most anxiety producing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to Um, build on that, since the book coming out in 2017, there's been a lot of growing popularity in the media about extracurricular activities being incorporated in a very Chinese way into the education system there. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how do you think that, the, the Chinese education system is grappling with this idea of adding more levity, adding more extracurricular activities to the program. And from your experiences with these Chinese parents, do you think it's possible for them to, to find their own way of incorporating those sorts of aspects of education? Oh, I, I think the
1: Chinese are even better at the extracurriculars than, I think they're really well rehearsed. I mean, I think that you know, my son, for example, he played on a traveling soccer team um, at his training school the last two years. And, you know, parents would miss games because their son played soccer, but he also played on the chess team. And also he belonged to the Math Olympiad team and
0: oh, you know, they thanks. were just
1: overscheduled. Yeah. And so, you know, we had this tournament in Bangkok and you know, half the team dropped out because there was a huge chess tournament in town. So my son was the one who committed to maybe two or three things and did those two or three things well. You know, so the extracurriculars I feel like is born out of anxiety. It's like, we got to better make sure let's try to expose my kid to these 20 things and maybe he'll be, you know, Juilliard level at three of them and then we can put it on the college, you know, a college application. I feel like that ethos still is very much part of you know, what I was seeing in Shanghai, but then again, you could say that of New York City too, you know, the New York City parent. I think the larger thing that one of the big differences between Chinese parents, and and I'd say even like the parents in the US, um, like myself, is just the idea that play is good for kids, that play dates, that having them choose their own friends and having unstructured time during the week is valuable. I still think Chinese parents are not getting it. I just they're not getting it. And um, they've heard about it, you know. They've heard about it. They're just, they just don't understand why. It. And that's that's a real shame because it feels like wasted time, you know. If little Ming, you know, his classmate is going to be getting that extra head start on the other three hundred characters that they're going to learn this year, and my son is playing with a friend. I mean, you don't get anything out of playing with a friend that's overt, mm. but. But you know, in the talk that I give very often to this particular subset of of people, which is Chinese parents, is that you're actually learning a lot during free play and unstructured time, like how to make friends, um, how to look out for friends, how to n- navigate unexpected situations. These are all things that will pay off for you later on in life. You know, whether it's working with colleagues you don't like or you know, sitting at a conference table and trying to get your voice heard. These are not things that come out from knowing an extra 300 characters three months faster than your classmate Ming. And, and to me, life is, in, life is in those moments. Life is in the play. Life is in that. You know, even the lunchroom, to me, it's like if China, if the Ministry of Education could somehow say at the lunch table, children are allowed to talk and they're allowed to pick who they sit next to that would go a long way towards solving perhaps a socio-emotional competency issue um, that I think we are seeing in, in, um, in Chinese schools. You know, at least let some part of the day be unstructured where they can chat, mm. where they can negotiate, where they can barter and sit next to whom they like. And, you know, some kids are going to be left out. Well, they're going to learn how to deal with being left out, Right. You know, it, it's like all of these things that if you try to control too much, they never learn for themselves.
0: <laughs> and so, it was born out of that. Do you think that creativity comes out of this unstructured time that you're referencing?
1: I think some of it does. But the problem is when I meet these educators who think they have creativity figured out in the West, usually in the US, they're forgetting one very important part. You know, so they, they think that it's all about unstructured activity, about letting kids be kids exploring what they want to do, but if these kids don't know anything, if they don't have the knowledge and the expertise to back it up, they're never going to iterate to the next level. And that ultimately is the goal of creativity at its finest, right? We want to iterate something to the next level. And if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't know how to get there. And and that's the truth. And so in my talks, I often talk about creativity as three components. And one of it is knowledge and expertise. And we often forget that. Um, that that's important. The Chinese get that very, very well. They're really good at the knowledge, right? They almost focus too much on content. But the other parts, which are intrinsic motivation and curiosity, you have to have an internal motivation to do something about a particular problem in order to solve it. And then the third part, which is just unstructured, original expression coming at something a different way, The Chinese also don't cultivate very well in the classroom. So if you break the creative process down into three parts, you'll understand it's not as simple just to say the Chinese are bad at it across the board. That's not true. They're they're good at the knowledge and expertise part of it, but oftentimes they lose the other two, which we in the West, very generally speaking, tend to emphasize in our classrooms. So it's like a multi-piece puzzle. Yeah,
0: not only that we tend to emphasize, but we tend to hold up relative to the Chinese system in the sense that they can drill all this knowledge. They can be incredibly smart by the books, but we have this freedom of thought. We have this creative prowess relative to their system that they just can't emulate. And what I'm curious about as well is, do you think there's another approach to creativity, that creativity is something that can be learned, that it doesn't just come out of unstructured time and come out of play. So I get what you're saying. I think you really have to have it all. So let's back it up to why are we so obsessed with creativity? And in part
1: it's because, well, first of all, the world is facing a lot of challenges, you know, climate change, you know, say solving cancer, yeah. delivering potable water, you know, to communities who don't have any. You know, these are going to require a lot of creativity, but they're also going to require the expertise component. You know, the person who Solves climate change. It's not going to be a person, it's going to be a bunch of people working in conjunction, but there's going to be a deep level of domain specific expertise, knowledge of of environmental science, you know, whatever the field is that is going to be required to creatively solve the greatest problems Mm -hmm. of our time. You know, it's going to take that person or that team that has all of it, the knowledge in, say, climate science, as well as let's look at this problem and try something crazy, something nobody's ever thought of before. It's those things together that are going to take us to the next level, that will iterate to the next level. Um, I don't want to slap a label on it, you know, East versus West or whatever, but there are a lot of schools and a lot of educators who over on the original expression, the freedom part of the creativity, of the creative process. But again, if you don't know what you're looking at, you cannot iterate to the next level. So it, it's, it's really basic, you know, and you can apply this framework to almost anything. Um, you know, if a kid, say a parent, you know, has a kid who's really, it's got like 100% content environment. All they're doing is like regurgitating facts. Well, what about letting them choose an elective for themselves? And what about having them practice what it's like to come at something in a completely different way if they don't have practice, and that's what my research found is that creativity is actually a muscle that can atrophy if it's not used or can strengthen with exercise. You know, so that, that's one thing that I've found as a parent of a child in this fairly rigid Chinese system, that it's a muscle, right? And, and um, you know, he just, he just has to have the opportunity to exercise it. Now, in his last couple of years in Shanghai, we were at a, a hybrid school that was really doing what I thought was a pretty good job of combining all of those elements into the same curriculum, The local public system, not so much, but a lot of the private schools, the experimental schools, um, some of these international schools are doing a pretty good job of of having both the rigor and also the individuality and the creative expression.
0: I have one more question about the school in Shanghai. You mentioned recently that you just said Chinese are good at the knowledge part. What non-academic lessons did Rainey learn at that school?
1: Hmm. You know, it's funny. He's He's a really sensitive kid. And I think that comes from always being the outsider, always trying to figure out where you fit in and when to assert yourselves and when not to. And sometimes that's been painful for him and for us. um, But I think overall, that adaptability will always carry with him, hopefully, (laughs) throughout life. Um, The other non-academic lessons, we're in Germany now. And it's been a real culture shock, I think, for, for all of us, just trying to adjust to how differently things operate here, um, how the classroom is structured. I would say the content here is stacked in the later years. So in China, where they were doing seventh grade UK math in fourth grade, now they're doing second grade UK math in fifth grade (laughs) here. It's just like a really different, but but they're focused on, you know, storytelling and we're having to read for half an hour every day. And then they come back and they have these great debates about philosophy and literature. And so it's just everything comes in a different order and with a different context. And I think I'm happy that he's having these very different educational experiences, but he's we're, we're requiring a lot of him.
0: <laughs> we require a lot of him. That makes a lot of sense. And let me know if this is too personal, but what about Raising a Family in China do you think wasn't captured in your book? I mean, you took a very clear educational angle on this. It wasn't just about your personal experiences, which I think is great. It was backed by a variety of perspectives. Is there anything that that wasn't captured in your book that either was a story or an anecdote about raising a family in China?
1: You know, when I was in it, when I was immersed in raising my son in Shanghai and it, we were there for for a decade. There was so much anxiety around all of it and I never thought that I would miss it, but I do. I mm. miss it. <laughs> I miss thinking about education every day. I miss not being the only one who you know loves to talk about math. You know, it's it's a culture where you can really be in the weeds about some of this stuff, and it's appreciated. And I'm not finding those same conversations back in the U.S. I'm not finding those same conversations here in Berlin, and I, and I haven't been here for very long, you know. But I sort of I sort of miss that focus on on academics. I never saw I never thought I'd say that, but you know, it's incredibly stressful living in Shanghai. It's a city that moves at warp speed, and I don't think you realize that until you're fully detached from how quickly things work there just getting a house set up, you know, you make 10 phone calls and within 3 days you're you're up and ready to go. And here it's, you know, booking 4 weeks out for the electrician and taking 6 months to get a driver's license and an appointment for registration. The bureaucracy here Is truly that. It's a bureaucracy. Whereas in China, there is a bureaucracy, but there's always a workaround, isn't there? And I I sort of miss not being able to find that workaround. And in some sense, that is what gives the Chinese environment that kind of flexibility and creativity. You know, it may not come necessarily from individual creativity like we see it, but just the pace at which things move there and the way that there's always a workaround. There's a saying, um, I think I wrote about this in my book. You know, the the Chinese, you know, know how to find their way around a brick wall before the cement is dry, and that is true. And that authoritarianism, that bureaucracy, is actually a driver of creativity in some ways, instead of a stifler of it. Now, you could say with what the party is doing now, you know, that's different. We're we're seeing this whole new era where in the past, they've known when to get out of the way. And now they're kind of stumbling all over it, aren't they? They're they're in everything. And this is almost a whole new era that we haven't seen for quite some time. It'll be interesting to see how that all unfolds.
0: Yeah, there's a a scrappiness. And there's a creativity, as you said, around being able to get things done. How are you going to introduce your book to your boys? Have you thought about this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think, you know, it's funny, I've been thinking about the privacy issue more recently, and I don't think that I've violated anything in any specific way. In other words, I think that I was, well, no, you can say if, you know, some people have said to me, Lenore, have you thought about?
0: Um, I would say no more than people publishing way too much about their kids on social media, in my opinion. I don't know if in this day and age that my personal opinion that it's too public, but that's your opinion to make. I'm more so asking this question of, there's some really valuable lessons um, that come from the book in the way that not just a conversation you should be having with your kids, but also a conversation that parents in general should be having with their kids about, I wish my parents had more of a conversation with me about the decisions they'd made and how to educate me. Um, that's kind of right. the point that I'm getting at here.
1: Well, I think, you know, my son is making more decisions now. I can't really get him to do much that he doesn't want to do anymore. (laughs) So I think that I wouldn't write this. I wouldn't be able to write this book now. Um, He would have to write it. You know, he's of that age now also where I think that he's like his own little human being. And I think it's different writing about a three-year-old than it is about someone in in later primary or even middle school. So I don't – I think I'm done pretty much writing about him. He's read parts of the book and very quickly lost interest. It's not to say at some point he'll, he won't he will pick it up again, but I think it's going to be okay.
0: Tell me a little bit more then about the experience of transitioning away from this big monolithic project of writing a book, publishing a book, promoting, marketing a book, to where you're at now. Sure. Um, well, I'm still getting,
1: I'm still traveling quite a lot talking um, about the book. I, I'm in seven days. I'm going to Shanghai and I'm going to give two keynotes. It doesn't stop. Mm. And, I, and I feel lucky in that sense that the book has had a life of its own and it's still finding new communities. Um, I don't think that's necessarily the case for, for every book. Um, so I feel lucky in that way. But that said, there definitely is this period where it's like uh, I do another speech or a talk. Am I enriching my life in any particular way? Not, not really. I'm getting to that point where I'm getting anxious to figure out what the next step was. Um, I never thought that I would be, <laughs> you know, a year or two out and and not really knowing what the next step was. I mean, I know what my path looks like. I'm I'm here in Germany. I'm going to be focusing on China. EU, the US, trilateral relations, Chinese influence abroad. You know, China is always going to be part of my career. Um, I'm also now a public intellectual with the National Committee on US-China Relations. So I have a commitment with this organization um, to help keep the dialogue open between two countries, to educate communities about the US and China in relation to each other. And so I'm very excited about that too. So I'll be working, I'll be doing journalistic work from here. I'll be continuing to give talks um, when they come my way. Uh, but, you know, transitioning from China to Europe is not easy, and especially when you have children. It's just a completely different speed. It's a different culture. There's a lot of bureaucracy. You know, the school transition can be a
0: little bumpy. Yeah, I mean, you've had perspectives on different education systems. Uh, I know you haven't been in Berlin for too long, But is there anything that glares out to you in this greater ecosystem of the ways you look at different education pedagogies?
1: Not yet, but I think this will be an interesting place um, to look at that creativity question. You know, is is it in fact tied so closely to education as we think it is, or is it something else? Is it? The type of economy that people are graduating into? Is it the incentives for startups? You know, what it what does that all really boil down to? So that's one of the questions I'll be looking at.
0: With the work that you're now doing, what from your previous experience do you feel like is really relevant or being in a consulting role? It's somewhat different, right? Than being a writer or journalist. It's a different mindset, so to speak. Um but it does require having a really strong point of view. It requires having, you know, an expertise and...
1: Well, you know, it depends. I mean, the consultants a pretty broad term. You know, one project one project that I did, for example, was very much up my alley, which is just understanding best practices of Chinese education and whether there was something that could then be brought back home to the U.S. to a particular state a very large state um, and this foundation that I was working for was basically consulting the legislature on, mm-hmm. on best practices, right? And so they were bringing the knowledge that I was helping them acquire back to the legislature to say, these are the policy recommendations that I have based on what we're seeing in some parts of the world, right? And so I was sp- responsible for the Shanghai portion. That's, it's a lot of consulting work is very much like journalistic work, um, consulting work can also be, you know, educating people on how to think about a certain problem, and that's something that I do. I think every day as a journalist. But yeah, you, you know, it's not. It's not like corporate consulting. There aren't really any conflicts of interest. You know, there's there's nothing of that sort. Consultant is a pretty loose term, and I think that you know the type of work I, I do is really. It's more like research and policy focused, I would say, than like, let's write a pitch deck and and try to get VC funding. I mean, it's completely different. So the type of consulting I'm talking about is, is more educational.
0: I like to ask most guests this question, and you have sprinkled some advice that you've received at certain specific points in your career journey. But has there been a piece of advice that someone has given you in the past that you've actually found yourself giving to someone else recently?
1: I've been thinking a lot recently about um, what goes into a good decision. And I don't know what the answer is yet. But you know, I'd say that without realizing it, a lot of the decisions that we make, say, between our 20s and 30s are really formative. You know, It really lays the path down to how your life is going to unfold. But no one really ever teaches you what to consider when you make a decision. Sometimes it's like you see this shiny thing in a corner. I think I applied to you know, eight graduate schools, I got into a handful of them. And I said, Okay, that looks kind of interesting. And I'd like to live in New York City. But these are not very deliberate decisions. And I think that kids these days, often aren't very deliberate. And maybe it's not a very sexy thing to talk about being a deliberate decision maker. But I, I want to look into this, you know, and I, and I want to make sure that my kids for the last few years that I have with them in my house, I want them to make good decisions. I want them to know what to look at and what information to weigh when they're just making these monumental, you know, decisions,
0: I guess. Can you recall a time that you have made a deliberate decision?
1: Oh, all the time. I mean, I could have gone to graduate school for dramatic writing. Um, I could have gone to law school. I could have gone to journalism school. You know, how do you decide?
0: For listeners that don't know my age, I'm in my 20s. And so it's very interesting to think about deliberate decisions when you are at that point that formative point. And understanding how a decision will have the trickle-off effects is something that's very difficult to do. I do think, though, understanding the value someone has at the time of making a decision or understanding the friction point. So the reason why in a lot of the interviews that we do on Top for Tot, I like to know about those jumps when you go from One path and you pivot when you go from one direction and you decide to go somewhere else. Because I think from the perspective of someone that is not in the shoes of someone who's successful and for this purposes of this podcast, it's the intersection of women in China. How does someone get from being where they are at, just graduated from a university to being someone that's prolific in their field or is known for their point of expertise or is someone that people look to as a source of information and inspiration. It's all those little pivots along the way. And sometimes they aren't deliberate. My question actually I would throw back is, do they need to be deliberate? Just understanding the values and the thought process, even if it wasn't particularly deliberate, is incredibly important.
1: Right. It's interesting. Yes, it is. But in the context of, you know, my education work, you, you meet these kids all the time who want to do something, but their parents are discouraging them. You know, But but the truth is, say they want to go off and be an actor or a Hollywood producer, You know, how do you convince them that that balance, what's the balance between pursuing their passion and trying to be practical and supporting a family? And are these kids, and some of them have been the type of kid to just shrivel up inside because they're not doing exactly what they want to do, whereas others are fine putting their real interest on the back burner and they like that they're wearing a suit and making a good income. And I think that we're not really individualizing these decisions, the context for these kids, you know, and, and I, I just, I feel really bad for these kids. I felt like that happened to me. And I feel like I could have perhaps been taught to weigh a lot mm-hmm. more of those factors early on. And when I talk to parents who they just not, they just don't get how important it is for their own child to have an interest in what they've been committed to study for the next ten years your kid really has to be interested for them to be successful. There's just not a lot of right. getting that. They don't care. Right.
0: And intrinsic motivation degree. is something that so. we each have to foster within ourselves.
1: Exactly. Right.
0: Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta, women, success, China. Is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Hit subscribe and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is @TougherTough. Let's get the conversation going. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Tougher Tough.